Amen. I hope you guys had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I must confess I did, and the way I know I did, boy, it took me 30 minutes in that closet this morning trying to find something to fit. <laughs> so I had a very good Thanksgiving. Uh, I'll work on everything else later, but uh, it is what it is. We are plugging through the uh, book of Joshua. As Joshua 13 begins, God informs Joshua, as only he can, that he's old and stricken in years, advanced in years. But there's still much land to be taken. And before I continue, I would just like to, uh, we're blessed. You know, we have people that watch online, and I hear people say, hey, this is my church, even though I don't go there. And I just want to say, if you don't mind, Maria's mom and grandma, could you stand up for a minute? Because they said from the get-go that this was their church, and they're going to be down here for about three months, maybe longer, so I just wanted to welcome you guys. So now we're looking at the Philistine territory Joshua is along with the Sidonians in the south. And God tells them that not only did he not tell Joshua and the children of Israel that he would drive out the enemies from them, but now that they're going in these little pockets, areas of territory, he says that again to, to, to the leaders there. He says in verse 6, And all the Sidonians, them I will drive out from before the children of Israel only divided by lot to Israel as an inheritance, as I have commanded you. And as we begin to watch this process, I want us to take note of a few things. When God says, only divided by lot, to us that might sound like they're gambling, or this is a lottery ticket and, hey, I hope you win it. But it's nothing like that to the children of Israel. It was Solomon that said, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That's Proverbs 16. Proverbs 18, 18 tells us, casting lots causes contentions to cease. Whatever it falls, it should stop and keeps the mighty apart. Usually they use the Urim or the Thummim. They would draw short straws, lots like that. But when the lot was cast, the children of Israel understood that it was never a gamble because they prayed and they believed they were doing it in obedience to the Lord. And when they cast the lot, they trusted in the way that it fell out. It was God's direction and his will for their life because we serve a sovereign God. We don't do that today, cast lots. But if we follow through the book of Acts, they did it one more time, and then you never hear of casting lots again. And that was when Judas Iscariot had hung himself, and they're trying to figure out who's going to take his place. And it says, and the lot fell on Matthias. So even then, they were casting these lots. Once again, there was no gambling involved. It was the Lord's decision on how he would divide up the land. And as we continue in these chapters, and as we find out how these lots will fall out to each tribe, 
we need to correlate this with Genesis chapter 49 because they go hand in glove. When Jacob was on his deathbed and he told his sons, all of his sons to gather around and he began to speak, prophesy to each one what their inheritance would be. And remember, he said to Levi, you're not going to receive any inheritance in the land. And we'll find out they will not. But because, remember, it was only the tribe of Levi that stood by Moses when they began to worship the golden calf. God looks out for Levi, and he blesses Levi in that. Jacob pronounced, remember, a double blessing on Joseph. And I'm amazed as you read Genesis 49, it's usually about two sentences, then he goes to the next son, and it's two more sentences. But when he came to Joseph, oh, he just went on and on and on. And I'm thinking, man, I would have been a little envious about that. But God, when he does things, when he prophesies and when he gives things out, he knows what we can handle and what we can't. And remember, Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, we will see here that they will get a larger part. They will get a double portion here. And some people, you know, we can't handle that. I just said, really, the dice is loaded. However it falls out, God already knows. And I'm not offended so much by that. In a way, I'm glad by that because we serve a loving and a caring God. And that should bring us consolation that he gives us exactly what we need. It's one thing to be at a blackjack table or a roulette wheel and you're doing the gambling, but it's another thing when it comes to your eternal well-being in the will of God. I don't want any other man, anyone else to cast any lot for me but God. And that's what he does right here. You know, they've been talking about the big guy. Well, I don't want the big guy to do anything for me. Speaking of Joe Biden, I want the big guy, God Almighty, to cast the lot for me. And they, they are confident in that lot. And so as we begin to look at this, it's about our eternal well-being, the children of Israel, eternal well-being. He's going to put them exactly where he wants them in the land of Canaan. 400 years when Jacob prophesies, they come into the land. And now remember, the two and a half tribes are on the eastern side, but they're over right now because they're still fighting enemies. And now he's about to disperse the nine and a half tribes and their land. And the Talmud speaks about this. The tradition is they would have two urns. They had two urns, one with the nine and the half tribes in one, and then the other urn would be the plot, the allotted land that they would have. So the priest would put his hand in and draw out, say, Judah, and then he would put his hand in the other urn, and whatever he pulled out, that was their inheritance. And it's amazing, even in that, it falls out exactly how the Lord said it would. God has said the larger tribes would receive a greater inheritance and the smaller tribes 
will get the smaller inheritance, and it happens that way. But this is the lesson I want all of us to understand. I'm sure we've all heard of Joni Erickson Tata, quadriplegic, a great diver, promising career. And one day she dived off a cliff and ended up in a wheelchair even today for the rest of her life. And this is what she said. God, where is your love? How could this lot ever fall out to me? She said, when I look at the lot that was mine, it looked like a lot that was abandoned in some urban area filled with cans and beer bottles, rubber tires, and rims. She said, my lot looked like nothing. Then she said, as time went on, and I realized that God was superintending everything, all the things that I've done, and that my lot did not fall out to me by happenstance or chance or by faith, but by the providence of a loving God. She said, now, now that I've reached millions of people through this pulpit, this wheelchair, that I never would have reached before, she said, would I trade back to what I had? She says, no, I wouldn't do it. And I'm sure that didn't happen to her overnight. I believe it took years because she's honest with all of her struggles. But this is my point. Maybe to you, the lot has fallen out and you feel like your lot is a desert. God's given me some barren land. I'm lonely. I don't see any fruit in this. I don't see how any of this can ever be cultivated. But I would ask God about it because we have to understand God is a loving and he's a caring God because he knows right in that plot of land that he's given you, there's treasures there. There's wonders there to behold. And you know what we do as human beings instinctively, we look at someone else's lot and we may see a waterfall in their lot. And here I am with the desert. And we say quickly, that's not fair, God. We compare and we let envy get involved and we become jealous. And really, what we're really saying to God is, God, either you're not sovereign or you're not wise. Because one man, remember, at 120 years of age, strong, you call him home. And then another man at 100 years of age, he's old and well-stricken, and you say, there's much more to be possessed. And I love Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has decided to express himself through us when we become believers. We are his work of art in this lost word. The Bible says we are living epistles. And are we going to possess those things he's given to us? Great and precious promises. Freedom from sin, freedom from bondage, 
There is an inheritance that's fallen out to every one of his children. And it's by his power, and it's by his wisdom, and it's by his love. And that doesn't make our lot, where we are right now, any easier to swallow if we're in a bad place. I'm not saying that. It doesn't mean that we can easily put them in some category and make them more acceptable because they're not. But what God wants us to do, he wants us to bring all of our concerns and our cares and bring them to him, and we wrestle with him there. And we don't do that by accusing him, but being honest with him because he already knows, Lord, this is hard. What do I do with this? How can this, Lord, bring you glory, this lot that you placed me in from the foundation of the world? Lord, I need to know. If you just speak to me and I hear your voice, I believe I can continue to move because I believe there's treasure there. And there are things there I can be in wonder about. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 tells us this. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measure themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Remember, we are being conformed and transformed into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So if we're going to compare ourselves with anyone, Jesus is the goal. Compare ourselves to him. How are we doing there? The question is, what are we doing with the inheritance he's left us? Are we being good stewards over those things? He says in verse 7, now, therefore, divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. With the other half tribe, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses had given them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given them. And it describes now the two and a half tribes. Verse 9, from Aor, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, you can read all the way through this and what the Lord is giving them, the territory that he gives them. Look at verse 13 for a minute. In verse 13, we finally get a glance at the waning vigilance, the cheek, chink in the armor of the children of Israel. It says, nevertheless, the children of Israel did not drive out the Gersherites or the Maccathites, but the Gersherites and the Maccathites dwell among the Israelites until this day. You know, it's one thing to invade and conquer a territory, and it's another to persevere in that territory and finally occupy it. That's what the Lord wants us to do. Not a little victory here, a small victory there, and then it goes back to what it was. God wants us to come in and occupy the land so Jesus can dwell on the throne of our hearts. So what they're really doing here, we see the start of incomplete obedience. And the way incomplete obedience usually happens, it brings no immediate crisis. Everything is okay. It seldom does. But remember, little by little, the foxes begin to spoil, begin to ruin 
the vine. Verse 14 tells us, only to the tribe of Levi, he had given no inheritance. The sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire and their inheritance, as he said to them, and Moses had given to the tribe of the children of Reuben. And it's going to describe their inheritance all the way on the east side of the Jordan. It's funny, as you go through uh, the Old Testament uh, and the prophets, as you go through those books, when Israel was doing well, they were bringing their sacrifices to the altar. And that was important because the Levites, they would teach the word, but when situations and circumstances become shaky, someone's about to attack them, this is about to happen, that is about to happen, they would always struggle with the sacrifices at the altar. They would stop bringing their sacrifices. Things hasn't changed much. You would think that's when we should really move in into the things of the Lord. Lord, I'm, I, I, I'm being faithful at tithing. I'm being faithful at doing the things you've called me to do. But it was always the opposite. When there was a storm on the horizon, the sacrifices would stop, and that would mean the Levites didn't eat well. And it's just funny that it happens like that, human nature. So verses 16 through 21, this territory is given to Reuben. Verse 22 tells us, the children of Israel also killed with the sword Balaam, the son of Beor, the soothsayer. I like because they called him the soothsayer here because that's what he was. Among those who were killed by them. Remember, Balaam, God had told Balaam to pronounce a blessing, but Balak went to him and said, no, I want you to curse. And Balaam finally says, what the Lord has blessed, how can I curse? He couldn't. But that wasn't enough for Balaam. He says, I can't bless them. I can't curse them. But if you, I can tell you how the Lord would turn his wrath on them. And we remember the account. They brought the women in from another, uh, I don't know if it was the Canaanite women uh, or who the women were, but they began to ingle, intermingle with them and God's wrath turned on them. And here we see the outcome of Balaam here. He's killed. Verse 24, Moses gave the inheritance to the tribe of Gad. It says, to the children of Gad, according to their families, verse 25, from Jazer and all the cities of Gilead. Remember, Elijah came from Gilead. This is the inheritance of the children of Gad, according to their families, the cities and their villages. Verse 29, Moses also had given an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was for It was for half the tribe of the children of Manasseh, according to their families. Their territory was from Mahanaim, all all Bashan, all the kingdom of Og, king of Basham, and all the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan, 60 cities, half of Gilead, and Ashtoreth and Edri, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan, were for the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh. For half of the children of Machir, according to their families, These are the areas which Moses had distributed as an inheritance in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan by Jericho eastward. Notice verse 33, but, and that but is in contrast to what he said. He says, but to the tribe of Levi, he reiterates it, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel 
was their inheritance, as he has said to them. Now, chapter 14, we begin to get a good look at this man, and his name is Caleb. Caleb can mean many different things, but the main thing it means is the dog. And as we really, he's going to set in contrast Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to Caleb. Because remember, those tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, who stayed on the eastern side of the Jordan, that's not what God wanted them. God wanted them on the other side as if there was no pasture lands in the promised land because they were. But the first thing that caught their eye and their attention almost reminds me, it does remind me of Lot. When he looked and saw a a plush land, and he says, no, we want to stay right here. Well, that's exactly what these two and a half tribes do. Caleb, we're going to find out, he's not like that. He's made of a different spirit, and we're going to find out why. The wars of Canaan, they lasted about seven years. We've listed the cities that were taken in the kings, and then God begins, we're seeing this to distribute the land in Joshua 13, and on the east side of the Jordan River, where Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh is there, they had said, Moses, allow us to stay on the eastern side. And Moses, remember, he was upset from the beginning. I can't believe you're asking me this. Then he said, if you will go with your brethren, to the battle, and when they have gained victory and they are ready to move into their inheritance, then you can go back to the eastern side of the Jordan. So verse 1 tells us in chapter 15, these are the areas which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan. So they're in the land now, which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, And the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed as an inheritance to them. We will see the word inheritance over 50 times in these four chapters. We will continue to see the casting of lots here. And once again, they knew the lot was God's decision on the matter. If they perceived, if they thought that another tribe inherited a better land, a better area than they did, well, they'd say, hey, that's of the Lord. Nothing I can do about that. I have exactly what he's given to me. Matter of fact, it's the tribe of Dan. You can tell the envy and the jealousy and the contention in their hearts because they begin to murmur about this. And so the area that they gave Dan, they moved even farther north because they said that wasn't a good enough area. And what happens to Dan, remember, they were the first one to set up the golden calf and begin idolatry. They began something that was already in their hearts at the beginning because they were upset about the land that God had given them. And so they just fall deeper and deeper into envy, jealousy, and idolatry. So it tells us in verse 2, their inheritance was by lot, as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses, for the nine tribes and the half-tribe, for Moses had given the inheritance of the two tribes and the half-tribe on the other side of the Jordan, 
but to the Levites he had given no inheritance among them. For the children of Joseph were two tribes, there it is, Manasseh and Ephraim. And they gave no part to the Levites in the land except cities to dwell in, with their common lands for their livestock and their property. So you remove the two tribes, Levi, and you have Joseph in there. It seems as if you have only 11 tribes now. But Joseph, remember, isn't counted for. His two sons are Ephraim and Manasseh. So Joseph's name is removed along with Levi's name. That's how you come up with the 12 tribes here. They represent Joseph, and you still have 12 tribes in the distribution of the land. Verse 5 tells us, as the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did, and they divided the land. Numbers chapter 26 speaks about all of this. The, once again, the larger tribes get the larger area. The smaller tribes get the smaller areas. So we begin to see some clarity, some reality with the tribe of Judah, because Judah is the largest tribe. Judah would get the most land in the southern part of the, of the Canaan. And then Ephraim, which is the next largest tribe, they would get the most land up north. And, and we will see that begin to happen. So as they're divvying up this land, all of a sudden, it's interrupted. And you will have to be bold to interrupt Joshua and Eleazar. But this dude, he loves the Lord. He knows what the Lord has said to him. It tells us in verse 6, Then the children of Judah came to Joshua in Gilgog, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. Now, Caleb, he comes to Joshua because Caleb doesn't want anything to do with the rolling of these dice, the casting of these lots. We're introduced to Caleb all the way back in Numbers 13, 6, the first time we hear of him, and it says, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Moses, remember, picked Caleb out of the tribe of Judah to go with the other 11 spies to spy out the land in Canaan. We know the story. Caleb and Joshua comes back with a good report. The other 10 comes back with a bad report. It tells us, I'll be in Numbers for a minute. Numbers 13, uh, verse 30 says this in a little of 31. After they have come back, the people are upset. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. And said, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against this people. And then the contagion of weeping begins to break out. It says in uh, verse 2 of Numbers 14, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, boy, they're upset. Verse 6 tells us, But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. They knew exactly the implications that were about to go down right here, the way the children of Israel were speaking. 
It tells us in verse 9 of Numbers 14. They say, only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them. Rahab had told them this, but it just did not stick into the 10 spies' heart, nor the people. But it stuck with Caleb, and it stuck with Joshua. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And then it says in verse 10, the beginning of verse 10, and all the congregations said to stone them with stones. Let's stone Joshua and Caleb, even though they're trying to drag us into the promised land. Can you imagine that? Someone trying to help you. Have you ever been around a brother or sister in Christ and they may have went off the straight and narrow path, and you're trying to encourage them, and you're trying to exhort them, hey, come back and follow the Lord. He's merciful. He's good. He's kind. And then they talk bad about you, put you down, do things like that when you're just trying to help them. Persevere. It's called the perseverance of the saints. We know the rest of the account. God said, speaking of that unbelieving generation, have it your way. You're not going in. And verse 24 of chapter 14 of Numbers says, but my servant Caleb. The first and only time he says, my servant Caleb. He says that about Joshua. I mean, he says that about Moses. He says that about Joshua. And the next time you will hear my servant so-and-so, is 2 Samuel chapter 7. The only reason I know that because I'm doing 2 Samuel 7 on Wednesday. And I looked at it and I said, man, that's the only time he says that. Four times in the scriptures, my servant. He says, my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him. And how important is that? Yes, we have a different spirit as believers, but he's speaking of more of that. He's speaking of a different spirit when walls of Jericho's and giants of the Anakins confront us. Who do we run to? What do we do? It's going to be all right. That's what he means. He has a different spirit in him, that he can handle all of this unbelief that comes his way. And notice what it says, and has followed me fully. Then God said, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. Again, in Numbers 14, it says this. I'm going to read from the King James in verse 30. I like how it reads. Doubtless, you shall not come into the land concerning which I swore, swear to make you dwell in therein, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. I, the Lord, have spoken this. Verse 35, I will surely do So to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness, they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. Verse 37, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. Once again, the Scripture doesn't tell us what kind of plague it was for the ten, but it speaks of it. Verse 38, but Joshua, the son of Nun... And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. So Caleb, here he is, stands up in front of all of us, 
He's about 40 years old when this first happens. When he went to spy out the land of Canaan, and when the other 10 brought back this bad, bad report, remember they wander in the wilderness for 38 years. So he's 78 years old. And then when they begin to divvy up the land, this man is 85 years of age. They're getting ready to cast these lots. And Caleb all of a sudden barges in. And, he, and he, I could see him now. He says, whoa, 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 Joshua. You remember what the Lord said to you about me. I don't know what you're doing about these casting of these lots. That's okay. But I have a bill of sale with me. I trust in the promises of God. And I want what he has for me. It tells us in verse 9, so Moses swore on that day, saying, surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. Joshua, you might be old and stricken in years, but surely you remember what the Lord told us, and we want to take note of what Caleb is saying, because he's saying a lot when he says, the Lord said. And, and especially in our culture today, if something happens, I'll, I'll preface it this way, if something bad happens, whether it's a crime, whatever the crime is, it's always somebody else's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. Caleb I love this about him. He has no kind of advantages. And that's what we're going to look at here. He's a Kizanite. And in Genesis 15, 19, it names the Kizanite as one of the tribes of Canaan. So Caleb, we find out he's a Gentile. And somewhere along the line, his father's house, his father's family, they join into the tribe of Judah. And this is a wonderful place for him to go because we know our Messiah, Jesus Christ, will come from the tribe of Judah. And Moses chose Caleb. It was something about him as he was praying and choosing one each uh, individual from each tribe. It had to be something about him to say, hey, Caleb, you're not even... Jewish, but I want you to go. Remember, when they come out of Egypt, Caleb is a Gentile. Caleb has been a slave for 38 years in Egypt, and now he comes out with the children of Israel, and this man is following Yahweh God. He says, not only that he's following him, it says that holy followed the Lord. You know, in our culture of entitlements, this would have given Caleb's life, would have given him a, a banner to wave of it's not fair, it's not right, you owe me. I am who I am because of the product of my environment. It's my family's fault. 
It's society's fault. It's my first grade teacher's fault. It's everybody's fault but my own. Caleb had all of that that he could have spewed out, but he doesn't do that. He's given his life to the Lord. And we're told six times that Caleb wholly followed the Lord. That means to be given over. His life was consecrated. He was dedicated to the Lord, and he always moved forward with the Lord. This should make us all take inventory of our lives. How are we doing in that department? It doesn't mean that Caleb was perfect. We know he wasn't. You know, I think of Abraham and Lot. Both of them believed in Yahweh God. Both left the Ur of the Chaldeans. Both left family behind. Both made a difficult journey. But when push came to shove, oh, Abraham, Abraham's decision was always based on God's will for his life. Lot believed, the scripture tells us that, but when push came to shove in his life, Lot was motivated by the flesh, by what he wanted. Doesn't say he was an unbeliever because he wasn't. The the New Testament tells us. It vexed Lot's righteous soul day in and day out, seeing the atmosphere that he lived in. But Lot was one of those who started well and didn't finish so well, along with Solomon, along with Demas, along with Samson. Caleb is an amazing person, and that's why the Holy Spirit places his life in front of us. He's a spiritual man, But things didn't come easy. Things didn't come to him on a silver platter. And those things are always good. It's not good that people are handed things to him just because they can. It takes a struggle sometimes to shape a person. And Caleb has gone through all of this. He prayed and he sought the Lord and he allowed the Lord to lead him and not the opinions of man. And five times in in these verses, he's going to say, this is what kept him going. The Lord said, Caleb didn't have an Old Testament. This was God's word that he had put into his heart, and he had treasured God's word. God's word identifies this man's life. Job 23, 12 tells us, I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. He says, you guys, you can cast lots if you want to, but I've got a promise from Almighty God, and I want it. So he tells them in verse 10, and now behold, consider this, The Lord has kept me alive, Caleb is speaking, as he said, there's one, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now here I am this day, 85 years old. He's been waiting 45 years for God's promises. Waiting is not a dirty word, not at all. I don't like the wait, and you don't even have to tell me. I know you don't like the wait either. But it's not a dirty word because waiting, what it does, it builds character. It draws us closer to the Lord. 
We trust him more. We, we grow faith while we wait in the Lord and see how faithful he is to us. But when God tells us to wait, we must wait. Psalms 25, 21 says, let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Psalms 27, 14, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalms 37, 7, rest in the Lord. Hmm, that's, that's tough. And wait patiently for him. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Uh, verse 34 of that same chapter, wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it and you shall say, thank God you gave me grace to wait on you. When we wait on the Lord, once again, it shows our hope and it shows our trust in him. I love Romans 5, 5, the beginning of it. It says, hope does not disappoint. The King James says, hope does not make ashamed. That's more what I like. Because anytime I stop hoping and make my own move, I'm always ashamed of what I did. Caleb held to these promises that God had given him, and now he will be rewarded for us. He took God at his word, and he knew that he would inherit the land, and that kept him going. That kept him alive. He knew however long it took him that he was going to receive his inheritance. Not only his inheritance, but his children's inheritance. Same with you and I. We have great and precious promises. And we need to learn to wait on the Lord right where the lot has for us. And he's going to bring it to a fateful end. That's what it means with this verse here. Abraham waited on the Lord. Abraham was a man who was overburdened with silver and gold, but he never built a house here. He never stored treasures up down here. He knew this wasn't his home. Caleb was a man of a different spirit, and that's what we need to change this perverse culture in our lives. We need to have confidence in the great and precious promises of the Lord, in his ability to change us and make us different, as we grow into the image of Christ to change other lives that are around us, you guys. He says in verse 11, as yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now, please notice, is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. I'm ready to go to war right now. Caleb is the only one, read your scriptures, as they divide the land and they occupy the land, he is the only one that goes in and drives out every intruder. And we're speaking of the Anakins and the giants there. They never come back in Caleb's territory because Caleb trusted in the word of God. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, they go hand in hand, and he fought for the land and he occupied the land. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3 tells us this. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. God's word was as real to him as the circumstances that surrounded him. Is that true for us? Or do we look at circumstances and say, this is never going to work out? Do we have enough faith to continue to trust in the Lord and continue to put one foot in front of the other? You know, they tell me the greatest generation is that World War II generation. I think it's from 1900, those people born in 1900, 1925. They were born in the last part of World War I. They were born into the Great Depression, and then here comes World War II, and they fought like men. And they always speak of that generation as the greatest generation. When my son, I would joke with him, as he was growing up, we'd be out doing chores or something, and I would say, Bright? And my dad, and I know the reason I would tell Bright this is because I'm pretty sure my dad told me this. You are as weak as rainwater. (laughs) And as I look, he's not anymore. As I look at generation after generation after generation, this is my point. That's how they shake out. My point is, these men and women had to pray for their daily bread. They had to pray that their lives would be extended with all these battles going on and and the depression going on, and they were praying people. And they waited on the Lord. Now, if I have a prayer request and it doesn't come to fruition in two days, God, where are you? I prayed two days. I prayed two months. I prayed two years. We need to have some skin in the game. Things don't happen overnight. You might have to pray 15 years. You might have to pray 30 years until you begin to see that change. Put skin in the game. God wants us seeking him. That's how that word gets a hold to your heart. And no matter what happens, no matter what happens, no matter the circumstances, while you're praying for one thing and you don't see the outcome, but you continue to pray and that carries you on day by day, month by month, year by year. That's exactly what Caleb did. And he finally sees the fruit from him being on his knees. Proverbs 13, 12, the beginning of it says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Caleb never lost hope. We don't hear anywhere in Caleb's life that he ever became bitter. It's all about God's faithfulness to him. We don't deserve anything from God, but he saved us and he's given us an inheritance and all the glory goes to his faithfulness. Verse 12 says, now, therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard that in that day, how the Anakim were there and that the cities were great and fortified. Caleb, he wants this tough ground. He's combative enough to take it. 
And why does he want it and know he can receive it? It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. Notice he says his confidence is in the Lord. The Lord said, and Joshua blessed him, publicly he blessed him, and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. God told Abraham to walk through the land, walk through the length and breadth of the land. That was in the plains of Mambri, where God appeared to him. And then he told him to look at the stars and count them if you're able to. That will be your descendants right there in Hebron, right there in Mambri. And then remember when Abraham was sitting by his tent door and he sees these three men come by. And we know the one of them at least was the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the, he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision in memory, a great and rich heritage. I'm thankful that my granddad and my grandma knew the Lord and they walked with the Lord because it filtered down to my dad and my mom. And I saw them walk with the Lord and they gave me and they gave my other brother and two sisters a great heritage. I don't know if you had that great heritage or not, but if not, Let it start with you. Stake the flag of Jesus Christ in your life and say, this is my heritage. I'm deserving of it because God has given it to me by grace, and I will not squander it. That's what Abraham did. Caleb says, give me that. That's what I want, Hebron. That's where Abraham and Sarah is buried in Machpelah. That's where Rebekah and Isaac is buried. That's where Leah and Jacob is buried. And that's where I want my family buried, in that rich heritage. Isaiah 54, 17 tells us, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn Here it is. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. That's us. And their righteousness is from me. Hallelujah. I cannot claim it. You cannot claim it. It comes from the Lord. And then it says, he says so. This is my heritage. This is what I want. And Joshua blessed them and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. Uh, Hebron means bring together. It means fellowship. It means communion. And if there's any place where Satan wants to subjugate us, it's when we're trying to have communion. It's where we're trying to have fellowship with the Lord. That's when giants appear. You mean you're going to pray now after the way you've acted today? You mean you're going to come and seek the Lord's face with that kind of attitude? Lord, give me the grace. Take care of my enemy. Take care of these giants because you have given me an heritage. And I am stronger and I become stronger when I'm in fellowship with you and I can come to you and repent of my sins and continue to walk in fellowship with you. Caleb said, you said so, Lord. That's what I said. You said so, Lord. You are the one who said, 
If I sin, when I confess my sin, you are faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. You said that, Lord. And he's willing and he's wanting us to claim that, you guys, and continue to walk with him, no matter what the giants look like. The blood of Jesus Christ is effective then and now to cleanse us of any sin. And all the praise and all the glory goes to the Lord. Verse 14, Hebron, therefore, because of Caleb's faithfulness, because of Caleb's vigor, because of Caleb's plowing away and holding on to the promises of God, the word stayed in his heart these 85 years, therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. That's why the Holy Spirit continues to let us know he wasn't a Jew to this day. Why? Because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron, notice what it used to be called formerly, was Kerjoth Arba. Why? Arba was the greatest man among the Anakins. And that's who Caleb wanted to go to war against. Then the land had rest from war. The worship team can come up. There will be no rest. There can be no rest until we allow Jesus Christ to have the throne of our hearts. That's the only time, and I'm speaking of believers, that we can have rest. We, we, we wait on the Lord. We ask things of the Lord. Lord, I'm giving you this. We pick them back up, and the Lord is saying, leave them with me at the altar and trust me. Jesus said this, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's the only person qualified and able to give us rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my and my burden is like the Holy Spirit is telling me it's time to stop. <laughs> you guys. I know I say this often. Believers in Jesus Christ should be confident people. Not confident in ourselves. We know better than that. But confident in his great and precious promises. Confidence in his ability not only to save us, but to keep us. Confidence in that. Therefore, the closer we walk to him is the closer we have an intimate relationship with us. So when the bottom does fall out, we don't run around like a fire has started. We understand that God has allowed it, and we can rest in him. He's our husband. He's going to provide. He's going to care. He's going to take care of us. And he's, once again, he's conforming us into his image and likeness. So down here, we're going to go through things. But unbelievers are watching. Yeah, Pastor Brian says he's a, he's a believer. 
But man, when, when, when that happened, he didn't act like it. And I'm just, hey, he knows I can kick it with him. That's why we're here, to be salt and light. Because everybody can do the right thing. Everybody can have a smile on their face when things are going well. But when the bottom falls out, when the goal is put into that cauldron and it's boiling and it's taking off the infirmities, and, and Jesus, I remember a pastor said, and he, Jesus looks over until he can see himself. That's what it's about, being conformed into his image. If not, we're marring the name of Jesus Christ by our lifestyle. Let's walk with him. Let's walk in confidence with him. When we miss the mark, we ask for forgiveness, and we continue to walk, and we lay hold of the promises he has for us. Let's close with the song, please. Let's stand.